Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. As was alluded to, we'll continue our series, Encouragement from the Shepherd. We'll be in Psalm chapter 23. I invite you to turn in your copy of the Bible to Psalm 23. Please follow along. Before we dive in, um, admittedly, we have a lot of scripture to get through at the very beginning. And that is because we are painting a very, very specific picture of a very, very specific person. A very significant and important person, especially to our passage. So I invite you, please stick with me. I say that to say stick with me. Don't tune out. Hang in there um, as we get through this beginning, as we paint this very specific and significant um, picture this morning. In fact, would you do this with me as we read God's word? Would you stand with me as we read our initial passage this morning, if you are able? Again, Psalm chapter 23, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." David was a shepherd. You may be seated. <laughs> David was a shepherd amongst many, many other things. Um, but he was not the only prominent shepherd leader that we find in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, there are six significant shepherd leaders that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And each one paints a picture for us of the coming Messiah, as it were. So the first one that we come across is Abel. You find him at the very beginning in Genesis 4, or Genesis chapter 4, verse number 2, says this, that she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so if you're familiar with this story, and I know many are, um, this prefigures Christ, right? In that he is a picture of the innocent and faithful shepherd who is slain by his wicked brother Cain. In his life, it points us to the obedient shepherd who, much like Jesus, his sacrifices were acceptable, right? Um, they were acceptable to God. The second one that we find, the second significant shepherd leader that we find in the Old Testament is Jacob. We find him in Genesis 30, verse number 1. Uh, verse number 31, and he said, what shall I give thee? And Jacob said, thou shalt um, not give me anything. If thou wilt do this um, thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. And so this story, we find that Jacob 
is a picture of a shepherd who sacrifices for his bride and he cares for his sheep. The third uh, shepherd that we run across in the Old Testament is Joseph. We find him in Genesis 37 too. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. Joseph presents this shepherd to us who's faithful in feeding the flock and providing for them when they're hungry and when they are in need. The fourth one that we come across in the Old Testament is Moses, right? And he performs three primary duties that help point us to the coming Messiah. He watered and he protected and he guided the sheep. And so we kind of find these connections beginning in Exodus 2.16. It says, now the priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs um, to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped him, that old sly dog. And he watered their flock. And that's why by the time we get to um, verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priests of Midian. And he led the flock um, to the backside of the desert. And he came into the mountain of God, even in Horeb. Um, so like Moses, Jesus is, is a good shepherd who protects, he guides, um, and he provides for those who are following him. And so the fifth shepherd that we run into in the Old Testament um, is, is the author of our text this morning, um, is David. And so David risked his life for his father's sheep, as we read in 1 Samuel, right? In chapter 17, verse 34, David said unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and it took the lamb out of the flock, and I went after him, and I smote him, and I delivered it out of its mouth. Okay. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him, and I slew him. And thy servants slew both the lion and the bear, and his, uh, uh, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing as he hath defiled the armies of the living God. In the sixth shepherd that we find in the Old Testament this, that's painting this picture of the coming Messiah is Amos. Amos was from Tekoa in Judah, and it was a village about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And so Amos 1.1 tells us that he was of the herdsmen of that town, Tekoa. And then in Amos um, 7, verse 15, he tells Amaziah, it says, The Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go and prophesy unto thy people. And so in Amos, we have this picture of a shepherd who is caring for the sheep, but he speaks God's word also unto God's people. And so sometimes, sometimes we can best understand what something's going to look like or what it should look like when we begin to contrast it um, with what it should not look like. Right? Like, hey, I know that this is a good-looking person because that's one ugly dude over there, right? Like, when we contrast the two against each other. And so we find such a picture in a ruthless and worthless shepherd um, whose coming uh, is prophesied about in Zechariah eleven sixteen. And so it says this, For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that um, be cut off, neither shall seek out the young one, nor heal that which has been broken, nor Feed that that stands still, but he shall eat of the flesh of the fat and tear their claws into pieces. Woe unto the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock, and uh, the sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye, and his, uh, and his arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. And so we also find pictures throughout the Old Testament where God promises um, that he's going to take over the duties of shepherding from the worthless shepherds because they have failed um, to shepherd 
uh, Israel. They have failed to shepherd God's people. And so one such passage we find is Ezekiel 34. It says this in verse 11, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, I both search out my sheep, and I will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that is among his sheep, that they are scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from their countries. And I will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in the good pasture. And upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. And they shall lie down in a good fold. And the fat of the pasture they shall feed upon in the mountains of Israel. And I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down. Saith the Lord God, I will seek that which was lost, and I will bring them again that which was driven away, and I will bind up that which was broken, and I will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong, and I will feed um, them with judgment. So you skip down to verse 22 of that same passage. It says, therefore, I will save my flock. And they shall be no more a prey. And I will be judged between cattle and cattle. And I will set up a shepherd over them. And he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them. And he shall be their shepherd. And listen, since this passage is written some 400 years after the death of King David, it just doesn't make sense that this would apply to David. Right, so clearly, um, with the New Testament in mind, the context of the New Testament is clear. This is a messianic text, right? The New Testament then speaks of a seventh, a seventh and perfect shepherd, right? As the number seven in the lineage of good shepherd, uh, good shepherds indicates, he is the perfect. Shepherd, right? As the number seven, we know through scripture is often used to symbolize the completeness or, or perfection, as it were. And so it's, it's, it's no wonder that by the time we get Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, he is number seven in the line, right? And so several passages hint that Jesus is this new shepherd. We find such passages in Matthew 9. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus himself, he even tells us, he just straight comes out and tells us that he is the true shepherd and he shows it. And that's why in John 10, beginning in verse 1, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth into the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and he leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Listen to me this morning, church. Jesus Christ is the true shepherd. He's the true shepherd, not just because he said he was the true shepherd, but he's the true shepherd because he came into the fold in the way that God had revealed in the Old Testament that his shepherds would come, right? The scriptures revealed where the Messiah would be born. You can find that in Micah chapter five. The scripture revealed when he would be born. You can find that in Daniel chapter nine. The scripture revealed the circumstances around his birth. You can find that in Isaiah amongst others other places, um, the ministry in which the Messiah would perform. Again, you can find that in Isaiah 61. It even tells us of the way that he would be presented to the nation 
through a forerunner. You can read that um, in Micah 3.1. John the Baptist was the gatekeeper, and he recognized the true Messiah. And listen, it's of note. John did not introduce one of the Pharisees. He did not introduce one of the Sadducees. He introduced Jesus Christ as the true shepherd. His ministry was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 40, right? And so we find um, that that his ministry, as he's fulfilling his ministry, he is identifying Jesus Christ as the true shepherd. And listen, there is a great, great deal of, of objective evidence, right? That, that it's not subjective like your opinion or, or, or if we look at it this way, we might be able to. No, it's, it's a, it is objective and there's a great deal of it that can be tested to determine whether Jesus was the true shepherd, and scripture also revealed the miracles that this true shepherd was going to perform and was going to authenticate himself by these miracles. And we find this in Isaiah 35, verse 5. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and, and then shall the lame man leap as a, as a heart and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Thus Jesus himself, after he heals the blind man in John chapter 9, he proclaims that he is the good shepherd. As he's authenticating himself through these miracles. And so we see in John 10 verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. Right? And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Peter called him the chief shepherd. The writer of Hebrews called him the great shepherd even. We find that in Hebrews 13, 20. It says, now the God of peace that bought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus is the embodiment of all all of the shepherds that we find throughout, all, all of the good shepherds that we find um, and all of their good characteristics throughout the Old Testament that came before him. I'm here to tell you he's risen. He is alive. He sits by the right hand of our father who has placed all things underneath his feet. He is head over all things. Jesus knows his sheep. He cares for his sheep. He guides them. He directs them. He provides for them. He even laid his life down for them. That's um, John 10, 14. Jesus Christ is the true shepherd. And as the true shepherd, he sustains us, right? The shepherd sustains us. Turn your focus with me um, back to our passage. And as we look, I, I want you to take special care to notice where this table in verse 5 is located. Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. And thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. The best-selling um, author and pastor, co-founder of um, Liberty Bible College in, down in Lynchburg. I actually met him. That's why I like hesitated there for a second. I, I wasn't even going to tell you the story. Uh, I met him once. We, we ended up on the same elevator, that elevator right, right out there. Um, truth be told, I had just started school. Like School was new to me. Um, Bible college was new to me. Uh, ministry was, in fact, new to me. I didn't even know who I was on the elevator with, honestly. All right, I'm just going to ride the elevator up. We're having a pastor's conference upstairs. And uh, this older gentleman, he walks on the elevator with me. He's standing next to me. He's dead silent. We're looking at the door. He says, son, 
uh, you taking any Bible class? Where did you, where did you go to seminary? And I said, right now, I thought, oh, no, one of these fellas, right? And so I said, oh, you know, I'm taking some classes right now at, at Piedmont. And he doesn't say anything else. The, the bell dings, the elevator door opens. He says, well, you know what they say. And I thought, surely I don't. <laughs> I kept silent. And he says, give me liberty or give me death. And he walks right off the elevator. He doesn't say a word. I thought, oh, man, I'm going to the wrong Bible college. <laughs> Anyways, um, it was Elmer Towns. And he says this. Dr. Elmer Towns, he says this in his book, Praying the 23rd Psalm. He points out the fact that his sheep, they don't eat until they've been led through the threatening valley of dark shadows. Exiting danger, the sheep enter in then into a lush green pasture that provides enough food. And we see this picture in Psalm 78, right, where Israel begins to ask a question that I think many of us would ask, right? It's describing Israel's departure and their condition from wandering for, for some 40 years through the wilderness, right? Because as a nation, they had disobeyed um, God by refusing to enter into the promised land. So their punishment, as it were, um, God has relegated his people to four decades in wandering while a whole generation's gonna die off. And so during their journey, they begin to ask in their disbelief, and you can find it in Psalm 78, verse 19. It says this. It says, yea, they spake against God, and they said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Right? And really, I think this is a fair question, one that, that we've probably asked or you're going to find yourself asking at some point, right? Um, um, like, when I'm being chased by the shadows of death, when in the depths of my deepest and darkest valley that I find myself in, in the depths of my despair, can God sustain me? Right? Can he feed me? Can he spread a table for me in the midst of my wilderness, in this barren land? Can I ever be joyful again? Can I ever have peace inside of my heart again? Can I ever feel secure again? And his answer, thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil and my cup runneth over. Notice though that your table is on the other side or even in the midst of that valley. Your food is located not in a secluded home or in some faraway palace or in some gated community, but in the presence of your enemies. Listen, when two people meet, we are now in each other's presence. But the enemy of the sheep is not even at the banquet table. He ought not to even be in the same pasture. The indication is, however, that the predator has his sights on the sheep. That's why we find Peter warning us to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he can devour. Rest assured, listen, just as sure as the shepherd leads his sheep, guides his sheep through this dangerous valley, the enemy has followed. Right, you can bet on it. Your enemy, according to Revelation 12, is a crafty accuser. John 8 says that he's a filthy liar, in fact, the father of lies. Matthew 16 suggests that he himself is a stumbling block. John 10 tells us that he is nothing more than a thief and a murderer, and he seeks to rob you of your joy. He wants to kill your confidence. He wants to steal your hope. And he's attempting to convince you that his way of living and his way of thinking is somehow better than that which the true great chief shepherd provides. 
Right? Even though you are separated from the enemy, as you feed in God's pasture, never, never miscalculate his craftiness. Never underestimate the nature of your enemy. Lions roar when they're hungry. Do you understand? He wants to devour you. He hates you, and his appetite is never fulfilled. Nevertheless, the good shepherd, in his midst, his sheep don't have to fear. And he's still here. He's still with his sheep. As long as the shepherd's here, so is his rod and his staff. David, like many of us, have many, many adversaries. But in the presence of the Lord, seated at his table, they pose zero threat, right? Because David had guest rights with the Lord. See, in the ancient East, right, a host was obligated to safeguard his visitors from all enemies at all costs. And so when a host accepts a man to be his guest, he thereby agrees at whatever the cost to defend his guest from all possible enemies during the time of his entertainment. So Dr. Cyrus Hamlin, he was a famous American missionary to the East in the mid-1800s. Um, he was in the country of Istanbul, amongst many other places. And um, he's, he tells a story of being entertained by a governor. And, and uh, the host, he tastes a piece of roast mutton. And he, and he hands it to the missionary. And he says this as he hands it to him. He says, um, now do you know what I've done? And in answering his own question, he goes on to say this. By the act that I have, ple- or by the act that I have done, um, I've pledged to you every drop of my blood, that while you are in my territory, no evil shall come on you. For that space of time, we are brothers. They took this very, very seriously. Right? And we find this aspect of hospitality, we find it even all the way back in the book of Genesis. You may recall when, when two angels go to visit Lot in the city of Sodom in, in chapter 19, he persuades them to lodge with them in his house instead of staying in the streets. And he cooks for them and he bakes for them. But by the time we get to verse 4, this is what we read. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compass the house round about both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and they said unto him, where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and he shut the door behind him and he said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known a man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And look, you're going to find a very similar story in Judges 19 as well. And I'm not saying that I agree with Lot's thought process here. I'm not saying I'm in agreement with it. All I am doing is pointing, like maybe he just thought this was the lesser of two evils, but I'm just pointing out the fact that they didn't take this obligation to protect those who came under their roof. They didn't take it lightly. They took it very, very seriously. And so it's no wonder that David says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever because as long as I'm there, I got guests' rights. He's going to stop it. No cost to make sure I'm protected from all and any enemies. 
Right? He says this in Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, and in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Listen, I haven't gotten over the fact that he even lets me to the table. And and I pray that you never, ever get over that either, either. right? And and we see in Psalm 23, right? Like, um, it says, he restores me. He he leads me on paths of righteousness. He's, He's leading me to this table that he's prepared for me. And why? All for his name's sake. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Listen, you have a seat at the table because he took your place at the cross. The shepherd strengthens his sheep by providing for them with sustenance from the king's very own table. And while we get our fill, right, through the, the, the adversaries are ever present, our enemies are ever present, so as long as we abide with him, he protects us. The shepherd sustains us. And one of the ways that he does that, apart from providing us sustenance from his very own table, is the shepherd anoints us. Right? He anoints us. Often the first thing on the mind of the sheep, on the mind of us, after we've made it through this deep, dark valley of despair, uh, is our appetite and our thirst. And so after the shepherd's tended to those needs, um, he has another concern. Back to verse 5, Psalm 23, verse 5. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. The word oil itself is used um, over 200 times in the Bible. And often when we hear this word uh, um, oil used, it's, it's speaking of the act of anointing with oil, right? And that would be to, to, to kind of consecrate or to set something apart for a very special service, um, such as prophets, priests, and kings. And anointing with oil through the scriptures, it can also be applied as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit's presence and action in someone's life. That's why we find 1 Samuel 16, um, beginning in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil. He anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose up and he went to Ramah. So when Samuel anoints David, um, it indicates that God has set him apart for this very special service. He's going to be king. And he went from being a shepherd Right? To leading God's sheep in a very literal sense to leading God's people as king of Israel. And in that very moment, the spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. So it wouldn't be a huge stretch even for us this morning um, when we read from our passage that the shepherd anoints my head with oil to view that as a picture of the action and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of each of our lives. It was also customary in the ancient Middle East to honor guests at your table by anointing them with oil. And so that's um, why when we find Jesus, he's at, at Simon the Pharisee's house, right? And he's, he's eating. We find this in Luke 7. The, the woman begins, she, she enters in, she begins to wash his feet with her hair and, and, and with her tears, right? And then she anoints his feet and, and we start to see complaints that he would even let some sinful woman touch him, right? In verse 40, he says that, um, Simon, I have somewhat to say against you. 
You have an issue that she's doing this, but I got an issue with you, Simon. My head thou didn't anoint with oil, but this woman hath anointed my feet with oil. It was, it was hospitable to wash um, your guest's feet and then place oil that was often mixed with fragrant herbs or spices on their head. And so the longer that this dinner would last, the, the more the oil would run down and it had a cooling effect and it released a, a pleasant fragrance. And so not only was oil um, used in anointing um, to consecrate something or to set it apart, it was also this gesture of, gesture of hospitality, right, and honor towards your guest. But it was also used in healing, and that's why we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Luke 10, and he went in them and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil, right? And that's when, when Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, we find in Mark 6, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And so this practice of anointing for healing um, and protecting, uh, it was also used by the shepherds. Right, like lice and other pests would attach themselves to the sheep's wool. And, and if it got near their heads, it would distract them from being able to eat from the pasture. Right, and, and not only would it distract them, but it could even become dangerous. If these um, bugs and these lice begin to burrow into their ears, I'm told it could even um, kill them. So good shepherds would pour oil on the sheep's head. And when they came into the fold, they would check for injuries and they would um, treat these such injuries with the oil after um, also anointing their head with oil so as to keep the, the distracting pests away from their head. And ultimately, it helped prevent distraction and destruction. And so when sheep go through a dark, thorny valley, they get a little scratched up. I don't know if you've ever been through something, but every time that I do, I never come out the same. You come out the, the other side a little banged up, a little worse for the wear. You tend to get a little scratched up. Sometimes we slip and fall on the rocks. I might bust open my knee even, so to speak, metaphorically. I might bust my head open depending on the valley, so to speak. Sometimes annoying distractions are pestering. They're even endangering the sheep, keeping us from enjoying all that's been prepared for us. He anoints our heads with oil, right? Because he created his sheep. He knows that, listen, if these impurities, these impurities are not washed away, if these wounds are not treated, they can get infected. And anointing oil speaks to this healing process. And so I, I'm hoping that you're just beginning to grasp all the many facets of the idea of, of he anoints my head with oil. Let me sprinkle one more in, in case you weren't already maybe confused enough by all the many, many things that this means in our lives. When the angel Mary, um, um, came, when the angel told Mary, when he came to Mary and said that her son Jesus um, would sit upon the throne, right, of David, her son Jesus would be the anointed one, right? That word in the Hebrew is Messiah. And in the Greek um, language, it is Christ. Thus, when we use the word Christ, we're saying anointed one, right? When we say um, Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one, as it were, anointed as prophet, priest, king, right? And the chief shepherd, he anoints your head with oil to give you a special position in relationship with him. He's honoring you as a guest at his table, but he's also giving you special position in relationship to your relationship with him. Anointed 
right? Because you belong to Jesus, you are in Christ. That's why we see in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul wrote, But of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made uh, unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You are in the Messiah, the anointed one. You are in him. Jesus told his disciples, in fact, about their very special position. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send unto you um, yet in a little while. And the, world, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall uh, live also. And at that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. So how close are you to God? Paul wrote in Galatians, Christ lives in me. Travis, I don't know, I've just been going through some things. I've been going through this valley, and, and I really just don't feel that, that close to God right now. You know what? Sometimes I don't feel like I'm 40, but here we are right on the doorstep, right? My feelings of the matter, don't, they, they don't matter, right? It doesn't have anything to do with the fact if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ, the true shepherd, the chief shepherd lives in you. It speaks to our relationship with the Lord as well, to our special position that he's given us. And so not only does the shepherd sustain us with sustenance from the king's very table and he anoints our head with oil, but he also fills our cup. And so turn your attention back to our passage one last time this morning. David writes, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. I love a good cup of coffee. Like, I don't think you understand. I love a good, I don't know if it's like youth ministry and coffee and they just go hand in hand, maybe. In fact, I love a good cup of coffee. I love a good cup of coffee so much. I've been hearing rumblings in these parts that my father-in-law in his Bible study has been calling me a coffee snob. He didn't think I know. I've heard your slanders, sir. I've heard your slanders. And I got to confess, man, honestly, it's, it's true, man. Like, we, we grind our own beans. I probably spend way too much money on coffee beans. And listen, I'm going to tell you right now, don't try it. Unless, unless you're ready to depart with some money, don't even try your own beans. Keep doing, keep doing your little K-cup. Keep messing with your Keurig and your old nasty pond water. I'll drink the good coffee. Okay, we grind our own beans, right? We have an espresso machine, so we can pull shots of espresso at home. We can make our fancy little coffee drinks. It's delicious. You can judge me all you want. It's delicious. It's amazing. Uh, you go to Starbucks, you spend five, six, seven, ten dollars a cup, right? Not me, not, the, not this player. I may I also have a pour-over setup, and we may or may not even have a travel machine, just so we're never without. But I'll, I'll let you figure out if that's the case. But it, it doesn't matter, right, like how, how good the beans are or, or how purified the water is. And there's some science behind it, right? Like the right water makes all the difference. It doesn't matter how good the water is. Um, no coffee is as good from someone else's cup, right? It's just something about like having your cup. And so if coffee's not your thing, it's the same with water. You just drink water out of somebody else's cup. It's like, ah, this trash was this pond water. Yuck. But when you put it into your cup, right, 
it's just not as good from someone else's cup. And so when you come to the Lord's table, we don't find a strange cup. We don't find some beautiful, ornate, polished cup. No, you find your cup. You find your cup. It's not your parents' cup. Their religion is not going to work for you. It's not your child's cup as, as pure and childlike as their faith may be. That's not going to sustain you. That won't satisfy you. In God's house, everyone has their own cup. No sense in trying to drink from another. It won't do. The psalmist didn't say, my cup raneth over this one time. You know, some people always want to reminisce and talk about a, something that God did for them in the past. And yes, it is very true in a sense, right? We can, we can base our faithfulness or, or, or he can be proved faithful based upon past provisions. I totally understand that. But sometimes we walk around reminiscing of a time when we drank from this full cup, not realizing that, listen, great is his faithfulness. His mercies are new every single day. Tradition tells us there was Jeremiah who wrote Lamentations. And so he said this in chapter 321, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. I have hope because I remember it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Paul said this in Romans 15. He says, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. The CSB says it this way. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep your cup under the spout. I mean, that sounds so simple. But we walk around reminiscing of a time when we used to feel so close to the Lord, a time when our, our cup used to runneth over as if it's not a living stream. <laughs> Keep your cup underneath the spout. And that David said his cup runneth over. He had all he needed. He had everything he could handle and more. He experienced fulfillment in his life through his association with the shepherd. He was anointed, healed, honored, with purpose and for a purpose, just as you are. And when he ate at the shepherd's table, his cup overflowed joy unspeakable. And that's what Peter writes about. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, um, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Hey, man, how awesome is it that the shepherd leaves the 99 and ran after you? 
I can't get over it. I don't understand. He sought after you. He rescues you. He guides you along the right paths and through valleys, protecting you with his rod. And when you begin to stray, he pulls you back in with his staff. He guides you to a table that he's prepared for you through nothing you've done on your own. And as you feast on his provisions, he's anointing you, healing you from the journey, honoring you as his guest for a purpose, and with a purpose. Do you know the shepherd? Do you know him this morning? Could you say that you are one of his sheep? Right? Do you know his voice when he calls? Have you ran to him when you call, when he called? Right? These, are, these are very personal, personal promises that we find. They can only be claimed by those who know him. Jesus said this in John 10, in verse 7. Jesus said unto them again, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't, the, the sheep didn't hear them. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and shall find pasture. The good Shepherd, Jesus, is the door. He is the only way in. You have to enter in to the presence of God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? God the Son, Jesus Christ. He said this in John 4, 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But that water that I shall give him shall be in him a well springing up into everlasting life. The Bible says in the book of Romans, listen, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God is perfect. Therefore, his, his glory, his standard is perfection. And our sin has caused us to fall short of that glory. It goes on to say that there's a wage. There's a payment, just like you earn a paycheck every week. There's a wage or a payment. We've earned something for our sin. It says that the wages of sin is death. And it goes on to say, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through the true shepherd, the door. Listen, God loves you so much that he came to this earth in the form of his only son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect and sinless life, which made him the only worthy sacrifice. He died on the cross and he rose again on the third day, conquering death and hell. He conquered your wage, your payment. He paid your debt. And now his righteousness can be imputed to us through faith in him so that we can have a right standing with God. But just like any gift, you have to accept it. You have to accept it. How do we do that? Paul told us in Romans 10. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. Salvation is, av is available for everyone. He said, for God so loved the world. 
Paul said this, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't know him this morning, hey man, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from placing your faith and your trust in him? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We're going to enter into a time of invitation. I invite you, please stand with me if you're able to. And listen, if you've not placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you've not called upon him, you can do that right where you're sitting. Right? Don't worry about the right words to say. If you call upon the Lord with a sincere and repentant heart and realization that you can do nothing to earn righteousness before him and that you need him, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive you. Don't worry about the right words. You can call upon him right where you're sitting. But if you're here and you say, Travis, you know what? I've, I've never even so much as to pray. I don't, even, I don't even know where to begin. Travis, I know I need Jesus, but I have no clue where to start. If that's you, hey, man, would you be brave enough just to come forward? We'll have a person or two up front that would love to take the word of God. And we can show you how you can know that you would have a home in heaven. Right? If that's you, you come. If you need to surrender your life to the Lord this morning, to the true shepherd, you come. As always, the, the, the altar is open. For just a brief moment, I invite you, reflect upon the word of God. If you need to pray, you come. If you need to surrender your life to the Lord, you come as well.